Welcome to the Change Your Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in the listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star and zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you uh, so much, uh, Sonia, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's program, uh, Taking Your Blood Cancer Treatment on Schedule, um, and this is an important program. It's really a program about really remembering to take your, your pills, your treatment on schedule, and it's very hard to also remember those things, so we're going to really try to give you some helpful tips today as well. Um, we are also doing this program today in the context of COVID-19, and so our speakers will address that as well. Um, but we really want to focus on the topic of today, but I realize that there's other things on your mind. We, you know, we all recognize there are other things on your mind as well. Um, today's program is a collaborative effort between cancer care and many other cancer organizations. And really because of that collaboration, we have so many of you on the call today. There are over 200 participants on the call today. You come from all of the United States, from both urban, rural, and suburban areas, and even frontier communities. And we also have international participants from Canada, Lithuania, and the United Kingdom. Today's program is made possible um, by Pharmaceuticals LLC, an FD company, and Jensen Biotech, Inc., administered by Jensen Scientific Affairs, LLC. And I really want to thank them for their support of this program today. And I'm going to go right into the program right now. And we have wonderful speakers. We could not have better speakers for today's program. And I'm going to start by introducing Dr. William Bensinger. Dr. Bensinger is, is with the Center for Blood Disorders and Stem Cell Transplantation, SCI's Personalized Medicine Program, Myeloma and Transplant Program, Swedish Cancer Institute. And Dr. Bensinger is going to provide an overview of blood cancer treatment, the importance of taking your blood cancer treatment on schedule, adherence, and understanding treatment side effects. And he will also start by putting today's program in the context of COVID-19. And I'll turn my program over to Dr. Bensinger. Thank you, Carolyn. It's a pleasure and a privilege to be here today. I first did want to spend a minute or two talking about COVID-19 because of the concern and certainly the, the nationwide uh, crisis we find ourselves in. So COVID-19 is a new disease caused by a new virus that had never before been seen in humans. And it was first identified in Wuhan, China in the fall of 2019. But because it's new and no one has any form of immunity to it, it has spread rapidly throughout the world. The virus causes symptoms of sore throat, fever, cough, maybe difficulty breathing, and muscle aches. And it is spread fairly rapidly uh, by respiratory droplets. That's one of the reasons there's this six-foot perimeter that's uh, emphasized of maintaining a distance from other people. But it's also possible to get it by touching an object in which the virus has been deposited through somebody's touching who had the virus. And so that's another area you have to be careful about when you touch these surfaces and then you rub your eyes, your nose, your mouth, you can inoculate yourself with the virus. So you have to be careful about that. Um, you, in patients who have blood cancers, this virus is potentially more dangerous because they have an altered immune system. And so the suppression of their immune system limits their ability to fight the virus successfully. And the important thing is to maintain your distance, avoid crowds, uh, and use very good hand-washing techniques. And if appropriate, and, and there are very, only limited circumstances, uh, wear a mask. But if you believe you've been exposed to COVID or you have symptoms, contact your health care provider. Don't just show up in the emergency room because they're getting overwhelmed by this and it's not the best course for you. There's a number of areas being set up around the country to test patients as appropriate. But if you have um, 
concerns about that you've been exposed or have these symptoms, please don't just show up in an emergency room. Call your health care provider. That's all I'm going to say about COVID right now. Um, but I want to then turn to the topic uh, at hand today. So leukemia, lymphoma, multiple myeloma, they're all considered blood cancers. And these are cancers that arise from white blood cells that normally reside in the bone marrow, spleen, or lymph nodes. The particular type of white blood cell involved with cancer usually determines the type of cancer. For example, multiple myeloma is a cancer derived from a type of cell called a plasma cell. Lymphomas are derived from one of several types of lymphocytic cells in the bone marrow, spleen, or lymph nodes. And the cell type usually dictates the treatment that's used. Now, cancer treatment uses one or more drugs designed to kill or inhibit the growth of cancer cells. And there are many categories of cancer drugs, which include alkylating agents, anti-neoplastic agents, anti-metabolites. All of these drugs inhibit DNA replication and are used to stop cancer cells from growing and reproducing. Another class of drug often used are steroids, which are used to treat lymphoid uh, cancers or myeloma cancer cells. And in more recent years, there are newer categories of drugs that tend to be more targeted, and these include monoclonal antibodies. These are antibodies that bind to a particular protein expressed on cancer cells. And when these antibodies bind to the cancer cell, they can inhibit the growth of the cell or can kill the cell directly or indirectly through a patient's immune system. There are other targeted therapies designed to attack or inhibit particular growth pathways that the cancer cell utilizes in an abnormal way. For example, there's a class of drugs called BTK inhibitors or proteasome inhibitors. These have shown great promise in the treatment of lymphoid uh, cancers. There are other types of immunotherapies that have shown great promise. There's a class of monoclonal antibodies that serve to reverse the inhibition of cancer cells caused in a person's immune system. These are often referred to as checkpoint inhibitors. All of these newer treatments have resulted in tremendous advances in the treatments and control of patients' blood cancer. Some of the drugs used for control of cancer are schedule-dependent, which means they have to be given and taken at a particular time in the course of therapy. Other drugs, such as BTK inhibitors, must be taken daily or continuously in order for them to exert their effect. If doses are missed or omitted for more than a few days, early recurrence of the cancer can occur. So it's very important that patients adhere to the schedule prescribed by your doctor so that your treatment can be effective. Now, the side effects of these drugs vary with each drug and may be more apparent when combined with other drugs. And there's a myriad of side effects, but they can include general side effects such as edema or fluid retention, fatigue, insomnia, fevers, headache, or weight loss. There are gastrointestinal effects such as constipation, diarrhea, or nausea. Infections can occur, including bronchitis and pneumonias or blood infections. Peripheral neuropathy, which is numbness or tingling in the hands or feet. Muscle pains or spasms, shortness of breath or cough. Some of the drugs can exacerbate pre-existing conditions, such as high blood pressure or diabetes. And certain drugs can predispose to blood clots, which can be dangerous at times. Other drugs may affect the heart, kidney, or liver adversely, and this requires close monitoring of cardiac function, kidney function, and liver function. Many drugs also affect blood cell production in the bone marrow and can result in low numbers of white blood cells that can predispose to infections, 
low numbers of platelets that can increase the risk for bleeding, or low numbers of red cells that can cause anemia, which can increase fatigue and cause shortness of breath. The effects are the main reason your doctor closely monitors your blood counts during treatment. Now, often these side effects can be reduced by altering the dose or schedule of the particular drug or drugs. And this can be done often without a significant negative impact on the anti-cancer treatments that are being used. This makes it particularly important to discuss any side effects that you may experience as early as possible with your healthcare team so that they can make appropriate adjustments. And with that, I'm going to stop and turn it over to the next speaker. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Benson. Sure, that was a really outstanding um, presentation and really set the whole context for today's program. So thank you so much. Um, and there will be questions for you during the Q&A. And our next speaker is Dr. Michael Morrow. Dr. Morrow is leader of Myeloproliferative Neoplasms Program, member of the Royal Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, Professor Wall Cornell Medicine. And Dr. Morrow will be addressing working with your healthcare team to manage each side effect, each treatment side effect, adjusting to your blood cancer treatment over time, and coping with blood cancer treatments and other comorbid health treatments. It's really now my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Morrow. Thanks, Carolyn, and, and it's an honor and a pleasure for me as well to be um, amongst uh, my team colleagues from across the country, unfortunately, in, in cities and centers that are being affected uh, pretty significantly by, by COVID, um, but we're all here, um, and I just wanted to say in a word that um, we're going to get through this. Um, I think it's going to be uh, difficult, and there's going to be a lot of work to be done, and the healthcare community is is, is um, up for the challenge, is going to step up to the challenge. Um, we need everyone's help. I, I was encouraging all my patients and my, my colleagues, even myself, to be as strict and as careful as you can to follow the guidelines that have been set out by the Center for Disease Control. Um, there's a lot of information out there. There's a lot of information coming from all different sources. And, and, and I would, I would, I'm always telling people to go with um, advice that's coming out of a committee of, of wise individuals whose job and whose career is is based on infection control and epidemiology, and I think that's the most important uh, voice to listen to. Um, and of course, listen to yourself, to your loved ones, those around you, to, uh, to, to take care of yourself and, and, and those uh, close to you. Um, so in the next 10 minutes, I'll talk about a few other topics, banking on what Dr. Benzinger just reviewed, which is a, a, a sort of force on, on an overview. But um, I'll start by talking about working with your healthcare team uh, to, to manage um, each treatment side effect. So, you know, it's, I don't want to put everything in context of what we're dealing with with, with viral illnesses, but um, everything is related to everything else. Um, and in cancer treatment, that is definitely the case. So um, when thinking about treatment side effects and, and uh, expectations, I think we have to break it down by saying, what problems do I have? What health problems do I have to start with? What symptoms and problems was I coping with before? There may have been a new diagnosis um, that I'm facing or managing. Um, and I would call these, you know, what are my comorbidities? What are my other problems? Um, and, and that helps set the stage because sometimes you're looking to see if there's a worsening or a, a strengthening of, of issues that are related to your other health concerns, which may not necessarily be due to chemotherapy or cancer diagnosis, but they certainly could be. When you hear about a uh, treatment and, and treatment side effects, I think you have to look at it in, in terms of what, what should I be expecting to have happen? meaning what are the common things, what should I know to look for, uh, know I can manage through, um, and, and then, of course, talk to your healthcare team, um, and that includes just to go over the healthcare team. There are many different points of contact. Um, just like we're on the phone here today, I spent all morning um, doing what's called telehealth to talk to my patients um, like I was FaceTiming my, my grandmother or my children. Um, and, and it was wonderful, you know, because you can, you can connect um, electronically by, e by secure email or what are called patient portals or my charts, um, of course, by phone, and of course, in person. Nowadays, in person may not make you as much sense, but, you know, make sure you know how to access your healthcare team, uh, nurses, advanced practice pr providers, called, or APPs, those are nurse practitioners and physician's assistants. Of course, your physicians, um, just the staff that works in the hospital, they'll know how to connect you. So don't be afraid. Don't overwhelm. 
Um, don't go in, uh, Dr. Benzinger said, uh, unannounced. That's, that's a little bit trickier nowadays. But feel free to contact us. We're here. Um, and when it comes to side effects, um, you want to be able to ask, what, 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 what do I do if I have a side effect, an expected side effect? How do I manage it? Um, sometimes side effects can be pretty severe, and I think you have to uh, have an action plan to manage what could be severe side effects. Um, well, what things might just require a phone call or can I, you know, monitor at home? In taking care of blood cancers, uh, things like a fever can be a call to action. A fever can mean a trip to the hospital, depending on the circumstances. If your blood counts are low and you've just uh, finished chemotherapy and may uh, know that your, point, your, your blood may be at a point of maximal depression. That's especially important now because symptoms and side effects from other um, health concerns, such as COVID, could be more serious. So certainly don't hesitate to call or reach out um, for the expected problems. Again, many side effects do require evaluation. I think um, the most important aspect is communication because the healthcare team is usually able to figure out um, by phone or by message, by video nowadays or however means possible to help you understand do you need to call 911? Do you need to, um, you know, make an appointment? Do you need to manage at home? There can be a, a number of different things that could be done, even for a, a more significant side effect. Sometimes you may need to be in the hospital, and I, I always say that sometimes cancer treatment may be like being, uh, being expecting a, a child. You may want to have a bag packed um, with some key things you might need in case you do need to get to the hospital. Um, probably um, reasonable to think about depending on the strength of your treatment. Not everybody, but certain, certain people. Um, the next topic to cover might be um, adjusting um, your blood cancer treatment over time. Dr. Benjamin mentioned that you know, there can be an adjustment in the dose or the, the uh, periodicity of chemotherapy. A lot of chemotherapy comes in cycles where you're getting a treatment once a month or once every six weeks or every three weeks or two weeks. It all depends on the treatment, the cancer, and the, and the recipe that gets you into remission or, or treated successfully. Um, we're always looking to see how people are doing how the blood counts are responding, how the cancer is responding. Um, there are a number of different things that could affect how chemotherapy could be adjusted. If your blood counts are remaining low, maybe they're too high or too low, maybe there's an ele one element that's, uh, that's not right, that may require an adjustment or a delay or even an acceleration. Um, neutropenia, low white blood cell counts, is a, is a key uh, element. Learn about that, know about that. That's your white blood cell count and the fraction of cells that fight infection. especially important nowadays when, when we are probably concerned that patients with blood cancers may be more prone to um, infections of any kind, including viral infections, and it's, it's really good to know um, your situation, uh, especially right now. Um, chemotherapy can be adjusted based on how successful it is. Let's say you find remission early. Let's say it's taking a bit more time. Sometimes we augment chemotherapy and we need to boost things to get you there faster. I take care of a lot of patients with a chronic uh, leukemia called CML, and there were just like we're tracking a runner in a race, we're seeing how fast the remission's happening. Can we speed it up? Is it, is it um, you know, are we breaking records? Are we getting into remission very fast? And, and, and sometimes we need to adjust or change treatment, not because we're failing to get into remission, not because we've relapsed, simply because we're not getting into remission fast enough. So every, everything is dependent on the cancer, um, and, and it's, um, it's all about communication again, because we have to put all this information together to adjust how the recipe looks and how it needs to go. So we need to hear about how the side effects are, how you're tolerating it. Um, not a time to be um, sort of putting on a game face. We need to know how people function it, how they're um, managing, doing, getting around, so we can practically and wisely and smartly decide how to navigate together to make it work. Last topic in the last few minutes would be coping with your treatments and other comorbid health treatments. Um, we talked a lot about side effects already and, and some of the certain things that uh, can happen, and there's a few areas that are particularly important. Um, First is that all the care teams need to and will talk. Uh, for example, in, in leukemia therapy, some medications may have specific side effects on the lungs or the heart. That's an area where we actually have specialists. For example, there's a field called cardio-oncology. It's, it's cardiologists that just look after cancer patients. So they're going to specifically know what kind of chemotherapy side effects might happen related to cardiovascular health. What about just screening someone to make sure that cardiovascular health is as good as possible before they get chemotherapy? So. It's okay to have comorbidities. They happen, and they're not going to mean you can't get good cancer treatment. Sometimes we want to make sure we don't develop any comorbid health issues, and we're going to be very proactive to get you to a specialist. Don't worry. It just means we're looking out for you. We want to make sure everything is um, looked at together, because, again, everything is connected to everything else. The, uh, the shin bone is connected to the, to the foot bone. Um, 
in, in leukemia and blood cancer treatment, we're often um, working with cardiologists, pulmonologists, infectious disease specialists. My goodness, they are right hand uh, and partners in this, and boy, are they being overworked right now. Neurologists, um, uh, urologists, uh, all kinds of different specialists, uh, nephrologists. So don't be afraid to, uh, to be seen by another specialist to help us manage either an illness you might have or a comorbid condition you have, another, another health problem, or us trying to anticipate and making sure you don't have any difficulties with your treatment. Um, the, uh, the other thing to mention is that sometimes cancer diagnosis really takes front and center stage and other things are cast aside. And that's a dangerous um, area to get into. Make sure your general health maintenance does not get neglected. I, um, I'm always encouraging my, my leukemia patients to, what about your primary care physician? Have you seen them? Have you kept in touch with them? Do you still have one? We can do a lot in oncology, but we can't do everything. We're not Just because we're doing scans and blood tests and, and things routinely, we're not looking at everything in your health. So we have to work together, and don't skip your general health maintenance, your mammograms, your pap smears, your, your prostate-specific uh, antigen tests, all the things that are, are telling you that your other health, your colonoscopy, my goodness, um, all those things are super important because we, if we win one battle for one cancer, we still even want to let another one slip past us. Um, and then the last thing I mentioned is that when they're all said and done, a cancer survivor sometimes needs special follow-up. And maybe certain things that are specific to your chemotherapy, your treatment, your disease, your, your illness, that w- requires some special attention as you, as you uh, hopefully live a long and healthy life afterwards. So don't be uh, surprised or um, ask, actually, about what do I need to do? What do I need to pass on to my pediatrician, primary care physician, geriatrician, uh, to know that I'm going to stay healthy, and how do we, how does that doctor communicate with the cancer specialist to make sure that it all goes well? So again, everything's connected to everything else, and side effects are uh, unfortunately uh, a part of many of the things we do and a reality. But we can really navigate it well if we talk, we listen, we communicate um, between uh, the healthcare team, between the physician groups, and each other. And it, can, and it can go much better than some of the fears we might have about these issues. So I'll stop there, and I'll hand off to my colleagues, and thank you for having me on the call. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Morrow. And again, it was very wonderful, and um, I, the concept of communicate, talk, so important. And we'll, that theme will come up again, I'm sure, during the Q&A as well. really important to, to talk to, um, to your health care team. Um, thank you. Um, our next speaker is Dr. Elizabeth O'Donnell. And Dr. O'Donnell is Director, Lifestyle Clinic, Massachusetts General Hospital. She's Associate Director, Mass General Cancer Center's Survivorship Program, Instructor in Medicine, Harvard Medical School. Um, and Dr. O'Donnell is going to be addressing your lifestyle and blood cancer treatment. Can I take my treatment at any time of the day? Challenges and opportunities of taking your treatment on schedule. It's really my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. O'Donnell. Thank you very much for the introduction, and I want to also uh, acknowledge the comments of my colleagues uh, about this present pandemic that we're experiencing. Just as Dr. Morrow said, we will make it through this. All hands are on deck. We are a wonderful, united front in medicine of trying to help everyone um, get through this, and your medical providers are all putting great thought and care into each of uh, your own safety risks and how best to treat your cancer um, as we go through this. Um, today, I've been asked to talk a little bit about the topics Dr. Mesner mentioned, lifestyle, um, and about taking your medicines. I'm going to divide my talk into kind of two parts to address that. In addition to my role as Director of Lifestyle Medicine and working in survivorship, I'm a multiple myeloma oncologist, um, so blood cancers are really my bread and butter. Um, what is lifestyle? You know, in terms of a branch of medicine, it's actually a branch of medicine, um, and it's really looking at things such as exercise, nutrition, sleep, stress management, substance use in your overall wellness picture. I imagine that when most of you come into your clinics, much of your visit is focused on your medicines and refills and pain management and you know, really addressing the nuts and bolts and ensuring that you get your cancer treatments. But there's a whole long week that goes on in between those appointments where there's an opportunity to really focus on some of the other things that can help you feel better. 
there are actually specific guidelines set forth by the American Cancer Society, which are based on guidelines from the American College of Sports Medicine, um, that help us kind of guide patients as to what they can be doing to help themselves outside of their cancer treatments. When it comes to physical activity, that's one of my great passions. I still try to consider myself an athlete, and this is something I very much um, love and focus on. Uh, but historically, the guidelines have been for uh, 30 minutes of moderate intensity exercise five days per week. Those were recently re uh, revised an updating statement to say three to four days per week uh, would be adequate. Moderate exercise can be challenging for patients, particularly of multiple myeloma, which is the cancer I treat, if there's any bony involvement. But that, can, that definition can be broadly applied and really is tied into what your effort is, trying to stimulate your cardiovascular system. And then the other additional recommendation is for doing strength sets, so focusing on some of the larger muscles that help people get in up and down out of chairs, up and down stairs, and protect uh, than when they're walking from falls. And so moderate exercise is working hard enough uh, that you can still get words out but maybe not have a full conversation. That can be walking. That can be pool exercises. That can be riding a stationary bike. So there's a broad range of things that people can do to help get to those guidelines of feeling better. Nutrition is also a very large topic that many of our patients ask about. Most cancer centers have dedicated nutritionists that will offer at least one appointment with each patient to review your diet. In my cancer, where we use a lot of the steroid dexamethasone, uh, that can raise blood sugars. And so um, paying attention to your diet can be valuable for your overall health, but also may be just a component of general wellness. Again, there are some general guidelines that have been set forth such as avoiding intake of extra refined sugars. That can be in um, sugar beverages such as sodas or even sweet teas. Avoiding, refi avoiding refined and processed foods, so packaged foods or white flowers. Um, in general, it is advised that you only eat red meat at most once per week. And again, these are pretty general guidelines, but if you were to bring them up with your own physician, you might be able to tailor them a little bit more to your specific needs. In general, we recommend a diet that is composed of two-thirds fruits and vegetables. It's a hard goal to meet sometimes, but if you set that as your expectation, you'll get closer to it. Um, one of the most important components of lifestyle is also sleep and stress management. Any person who's been told that they have cancer uh, is most likely going to experience an increase in their stress level just by the virtue of the uncertainty and stress that it creates and also by all the collateral uh, levels of, of uh, impact, including ability to work um, and how it relates to one's family. It's important to reach out, uh, to let people know if you're feeling stress. Most cancer centers have social workers. Some even have uh, psychologists specifically trained to manage stress in the cancer patient, there may be resources available to you. Sleep is another uh, huge issue for many patients, both because of the stress and anxiety that can be experienced, but also some of the side effects of medications can impair sleep. This is a particularly large problem in my cancer multiple myeloma where we give dexamethasone. In the next five minutes of my time, I'll talk about uh, timing of medicines as well. But there may be strategies to mitigate the burden of uh, some of your medicines and the effects they may have on your sleep. Um, you can also talk about sleep hygiene, which includes going to bed at the same time every day, not drinking caffeinated beverages, minimizing naps, both in terms of when they occur and how long they last. Um, and if you're really struggling with sleep, there are medicines. Just like if you were nauseated, you would ask for a medicine or a therapy to help with that. There are medicines that can be prescribed by your provider and adjusted according to your needs that may help you. So your life outside of your cancer treatment is so critical and so important. And know that there are some parameters and guidelines that your physician and your team can help address with you, uh, work in partnership with your team. We also have resources like physical therapists that can supplement uh, what your care team is able to provide. 
in the remainder of my time, I'm going to shift focus and talk a little bit about medicines, timing of medicines, and how to stick with them so you get the most efficacy. Uh, so for my cancer, again, multiple myeloma, it seems like for every one medicine we prescribe you uh, to treat the cancer, we prescribe you another to prevent a side effect. For example, Revlimid is a medicine we use that has a risk of blood clots, so we prescribe aspirin. Velcade is a medicine we use, and we prescribe acyclovir to prevent shingles. And so the amount of pills, some people go from having not taken any uh, to having a full full countertop, uh, full of medicines. And so one strategy uh, that can be very useful is really to have a pill box. That's useful just in terms of organizing your medicines, but also in terms of keeping track. It's very easy to forget if you've taken something in the morning, if it's just in a bottle, especially when you're taking it day in and day out, week in and week out, year in and year out. So building a pill box will help organize your medicines, but will also help you keep track of whether or not you've taken them. If you have difficulty creating a pill box, I know our nurses will help patients get their pill box filled, and also we can get visiting nurses for those who need some assistance at home. That resource may be available to you as well. Um, this will certainly help keeping track, but timing also can matter. So there are two aspects to timing. There's just the primary element of trying to keep the drug levels inside your body consistent so you get the benefit that's intended from the medicines. Um, and then there's also trying to uh, take the medicine at the time of day that will um, be best suited to you. For example, if a medicine, and I'll use my own again, Revlimid, uh, makes you a little bit tired, I recommend that all of my patients take that medicine at night so that they're not sleepy during the day and it might actually help them sleep better. A different example, the opposite example, is the medicine dexamethasone, which is a steroid. Steroids can really um, make people uh, feel hyper alert, agitated, have difficulty sleeping. And so I have patients take those medicines in the morning so that if they're going to be super energetic uh, or have difficulty sleeping, that it's better that they take it earlier so the effect is less as the day goes on. Um, so those are some strategies, and, and especially with uh, medicines that may cause a little nausea, I'll have my patients take them at night so that they can sleep through rather than uh, feel more nauseous. So there are different strategies that you can employ, uh, and it can be overwhelming. And your pharmacist as well can help advise you on timing of medicines uh, as they relate to one another. Some medicines cannot be taken at the same time, and so it's important uh, when you start treatment, when you add these medicines in, to review your list with either your hospital-based pharmacist or the pharmacist who provides your medicines uh, to really go through that and make sure you get the optimal benefit from your medicines. Um, <clears throat> one thing that patients worry about a lot, though, is if they miss their medicine or if they don't take a dose. Um, you know, if you're concerned uh, about the timing of when you left took it, um, in terms of it being too soon, um, you know, you can certainly touch base with your doctor's office. However, you know, for a lot of the cancers, blood cancers, this is a marathon pace. And so uh, while we very much encourage you to stick to your schedule, do not let it become a source of anxiety if there are small variations. Um, we want people to really try and have the best quality of life as possible uh, while they go through their cancer treatment. Um, so those are my topics for today. I'd be happy to go into greater detail during the question and answer session. Thank you very much uh, for the invitation to participate and to discuss these topics. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Val. That was really outstanding and really bringing in lifestyle is so important here in terms of just how to integrate all of this into people's lifestyle and also how to use, how to, how to use your lifestyle to help you to manage all of your treatments as well. So really excellent. Um, um, excellent team of speakers, I must say, and I, um, we're going to take questions in about a minute or two. I just want to say a few words about cancer care, and then we're going to, um, as a resource for all of you, and then we're going to take your questions. Um, cancer Care is a national organization. Um, it's staffed primarily by oncology social workers, and they, we have a hopeline, 1-800-813-4673, um, or you can visit our website at www.cancercare.org. 
Um, we provide a really host of services. If you want to call it a menu of services, you can call and um, access tactical systems from us. Um, we also provide financial assistance to people in the United States. Um, we also provide a chance to talk with one of our oncology social workers about your concerns or questions, and you can do that basically on the phone or online. And we do have uh, quite a few, an array of um, online and telephone support groups on on blood cancers, on uh, all different, also for different populations, so for older adults, younger adults, uh, middle-aged adults, um, for caregivers, for partners, um, for spouses. So there are different relationships that we offer programs for. We also have a Cancer Care for Kids program, which is a program primarily for children who, for whom there is cancer in their families, and to help them to understand what's going on and to help also their parents or guardians or grandparents to communicate with them to some extent about what is going on. Um, so that, um, that's been a very important piece. We do these education workshops. There's a lot of them coming up. And we also um, do a number of publications and fact sheets. Um, so with that all being said, we now do have time for your questions. And I'm going to, um, to ask Sonia to bring all of our speakers on board. And uh, if uh, Sonia could explain to you how to care for questions, I'm going to try, try to take as many of your questions as possible. So. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star than one on your touchstone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to move yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking ask a question. Our first question comes from Stephanie Kay. The line is now open. Okay, thank you so much, Dr. Messner. Um, I am, I think this is a great seminar. I am a neurosocial worker and a breast cancer survivor, not a blood cancer for 13 years. But my questions are, number one, why is long-term side effects never discussed? I had agemizin cytoxin and taxol herceptin, and I was never told about the possibility of agemizin um, causing heart problems. I had to look it up myself as a nurse, never told about herceptin causing uh, heart problems and lung problems. And my oncologist said, you don't need any more mug scans anymore. I had four. And I want to know in the future why they don't want to discuss that you, could need, you may need to have more. And also the possibility of any kind of problems that could happen to you later on. The second question I'd like to know is what about the long-term effects um, um, so, for example, this never discussed also, I'm sorry, about vitamins or herbs with the doctor about what you may need later on. And uh, that also the taking it for as a pan for pain that could be continued, which I do. So I'd like to know more about that long-term side effect. Thank, Thank you. you Thank you, Stephanie. So, excellent questions. Um, so for your first question, um, I'm going to talk about Don like you would address in a general way because this, um, Stephanie's experience was her experience a number of years ago. I'm wondering if things... I'd be happy to talk about that. So, you know, I'm not a breast cancer oncologist, so I won't delve into the specifics of the frequency of, of MUGA scans and when that's to be done. In general, the consenting procedure when you receive chemotherapy uh, is to review the side effects of each medication. Um, for our cancer center, we view a specific list that covers each of the body organs and what the effect of each drug might be on that um, system. So, you know, again, the, the consenting process should be done by your provider, your oncologist, MD, uh, and should include both the short and long-term side effects that we know of at the time. Sometimes these side effects change with newer drugs as we get greater experience them or have more follow-up time we sometimes learn of long-term toxicities that we might not have been as aware of early on. I can't speak um, to your provider and the circumstances in terms of how you're consented, but the general approach is uh, to address both short and long-term toxicities. Thank you. Um, there's another part to that question about, I guess what's the question Herbals. About? Yeah, about just herbals and long-term management. So, you know, this is a really hard area for um, your oncologist to comment on. A lot of herbal medications, those are not FDA-approved drugs. They have not been studied in clinical trials. Uh, so there is a, a paucity. There's just not a lot of data about many of these that's been well studied in your cancer population. One of the things that is very important is that if you are taking supplements that your oncologist know about them, 
there are certain supplements, for example, green tea with Velcade, that we know they interfere with the mechanism of the cancer-fighting drug, and we would tell you not to take those during your care. So I think what I can say is if you are taking supplements, it is critical that your oncologist know about them um, and know how much you're taking. There have been studies of supplements within cancer, and a great example was one done of vitamin A in lung cancer that actually showed a greater harm from those supplements to the patients taking them. So uh, it is important just that we know, and um, if someone has deficiencies of certain vitamins like vitamin D, uh, for example, or B12, uh, that we might test for in conjunction with administering medicines, we would then provide the repletion of that specific vitamin and a dose that's appropriate uh, for each patient. So some of the long-term care uh, is part is shared by both your oncologist, but as you transition out, your primary care doctor. There are no specific guidelines, though, in most cancers for specific supplemental um, general health vitamins. Thank you. Um, um, so we have a question from our online participants that I'm going to um, ask um, if Dr. Moore could address it. Um, could you address the short-term and long-term effects of interferon for the treatment of MPMs? Sure. So um, interferons are an interesting group of medications. You know, they they have a number of different uses. We use them in um, hepatitis. They are used in certain uh, cancers and in, in MPMs. They they found a home in that there's definitely a, a pretty big wealth of data that they can help with blood count control and uh, even induce perhaps a molecular response um, based on the, our new discoveries about some of the molecular or kind of inner workings of how NPN happens. But the question was about the long, short, and long-term side effects. And then if can... First of all, it needs to be uh, carefully monitored. Uh, when you start interfering, you have to... Definitely be communicating pretty openly with your provider about side effects, such as, um, for example, depression and anxiety. That's a big thing you have to be on the lookout for. If you're battling that to start, that can definitely worsen, and some people can be feeling okay heading into an interferon treatment um, plan and then have a significant uh, depression develop, which could be pretty dangerous. So that needs to be openly discussed. But it can run the gamut. It can cause palpitations, uh, Loss of appetite and GI side effects like diarrhea can cause um, weight loss, um, insomnia, um, blue-like symptoms, uh, it's particularly when you take the injection, uh, you name it, fatigue. So um, not to say something that's been recently quoted in the, in the, in the news, but you know, we don't want the treatment to be worse than the, than the, than the condition um, itself. But anything on, when things aren't right can feel like it a little bit. We need to be adjusted or held. The side effects will often disappear um, or resolve pretty quickly if we hold the medication, and then we can think about resuming. It needs to be adjusted pretty carefully. Uh, the dose needs to be brought up um, pretty slowly. Long-term side effects, um, you know, how long we use and how we use it in MPNs is really up for discussion. But I would say we've got to make sure we keep an eye on, on the status of the disease, bone marrow fibrosis, um, and something we look at from a disease standpoint, from a drug standpoint. Um, we don't have a significant short list of long-term side effects in interferon, um, but we know it can, for example, flare up autoimmune thyroid disease. It can cause liver inflammation that, that uh, needs to be monitored for. So there are definitely some sort of more chronic issues that have to be looked out for, and there is some follow-up that's needed with, between the primary care and the oncologist to take good care of the patient who's on interferon to make sure they don't have um, these kinds of side effects develop. But the, the, the thing to mention would be uh, to keep close eye on mental health, thyroid, uh, issues, and then just, you name it, um, reported and discussed, and, and hopefully um, we can work through it. Oh, thank you. And we have another online question, and this is Dr. Bensinger. Um, I feel so nauseous when I take my medicine. I know that I should take it, but I can't bring myself to do it sometimes. Um, what are some tips to avoid the nausea? Yeah, that's not an infrequent problem because some of these medications do have significant GI side effects. 
Often it's helpful to take an anti-nausea drug prophylactically. So maybe an hour before you're due to take your medication, an appropriate dose of, say, a drug like Ondansetron or a drug like Compazine, taken a half an hour before can mitigate or reduce the, uh, the feelings of nausea. And I think that would be my, my main uh, suggestion for you. Also, occasionally it's a dose-related effect, and so adjusting the dose may also be a, another way of dealing with that. Excellent. Thank you. Um, um, and um, we have another question, um, and this one for Dr. O'Donnell. Is there a special alarm clock to help take medicine? Hmm. That's a great question. You know, there have been um, actually some studies of uh, pill bottles that have uh, alarms on them, um, both to let you know when to take it and to ensure uh, that you don't take them at the wrong times. Um, so those have been investigated. I don't honestly know of a commercially available one, um, but, you know, certainly if you have a phone that has an alarm on it, that's another way that you can set it so that it's something that's typically on you. But I think having alarms is a great way, um, especially because they can – uh, be set to recur of of keeping yourself on schedule. And another online question that talked tomorrow. Um, I find that taking pills is unappealing, and despite my best efforts, I oftentimes cannot swallow pills. What options do I have? Well, I guess I'm lucky. I don't have um, that challenge, and I I personally am trying to to feast and strengthen my own household to see how many vitamins I can take at the same time um, with very little water. But that's not everybody. I know some people are quite on the other end of the spectrum. I think this is where the pharmacist can be of great assistance or the pharmacy, nurse, nurse practitioner, physician team to pull out all the tricks that are possible, to look at the medicine you're taking. How does it need to be taken? Are there alternatives? Sometimes there's an elixir or a pill can be crushed or mixed with applesauce or, or other things. So they're, they're, I think it, it, the first thing to do is to ask questions and, and have us think outside the box uh, to avoid the, the, the dreaded giant capsule that um, cannot be swallowed. Because sometimes it can be really challenging, either just because of the, the mental challenge of swallowing big pills, or sometimes there's anatomical or functional issues that really can limit someone's ability to take oral medication. So we understand. So, um, but I would say um, alternative formulations, alternative schedules. Um, manipulating this, the, the, the oral medication um, to make it more palatable um, and, and just um, looking at um, your, your comorbid uh, health in general, your, your, the rest of your health to make sure everything is optimized are the, are the tricks that I would say. And definitely do not hesitate to talk to the team. We've got to make sure medications are, are doable. Thank you. Um, and um, a question for, um, for Dr. Um, O'Donnell, um, so um, I'm traveling, and so when traveling, how how does one readjust medicines, um, particularly traveling? Although I realize people are not traveling as much right now, but um, sure. So you know, there's yeah. So there, I mean, I, I assume they're talking about when traveling across um, time zones. Uh, because if you were traveling within your time zone, you would just really do your best to, to um, stay on schedule. One of the big issues that patients sometimes worry about is just keeping their medicines refrigerated, or if they have to be, if they have to be refrigerated or temperature controlled. So there are some strategies around that, just you know, um, some cooling packs and making sure ahead of time that you'll have a refrigerator uh, in your room if needed. And then if the issue is about time zones, it really depends where you're traveling, right? <laughs> you know, so if you're uh, within an hour um, or two of your typical schedule, I'd suggest you just try and stay on schedule uh, because most people are traveling for a finite period. So you don't want to disrupt your schedule uh, and then have to switch it back. Um, if you're traveling, you know, to someplace that's six hours off, you can, you know, one strategy can be to adjust your time incrementally so that you're closer to your regularly scheduled time. Um, but uh, for the most part, I tend to encourage most people's travel is short-term, try to encourage them to stay on their same schedule so as not to disrupt their lives more. 
question. Could you comment on something because of go-to bag or having something? So even if you're just, you know, just going somewhere and that you have your some stock of medications with you, or could you comment on that? that yeah, a that's a that's a great point. So, you know, um, even particularly early on when the you know you're not as familiar with what each medicine is going to do to you, the side effects it might cause, whether that be um, nausea, vomiting, or even diarrhea, a lot of patients will put together kind of a go-to pack or um, some small collection of uh, medicines um, as needed for an emergency. If you are going to do so, though, the most important thing is that they be labeled uh, so that you know what you're taking, not just putting a bunch of pills in one bag. It's easy to forget if they look similar. Uh, and having that just be in a small, separate container um, uh, from not intermixed with other things uh, in your bag, but that is a good resource to have so that if you do experience untoward uh, side effects, you're prepared uh, with what you might need. Thank you. Um, and then um, for Dr. Bensinger, um, so can both be combined into a double dose when I miss the dose? I'm very tired of taking them so often. Um, I'm, I'm not sure exactly whether you, when you say a double dose, do you mean a, a dose that you would take more than once a day, or if it's a dose you're, you're uh, supposed to take more than once a day? Generally, that's discouraged because the the scheduling is is dependent on the pharmacokinetics of the drug. How long does it work in your system? How long does it last? And often, it's necessary to dose more than uh, once one time a day. So taking them together at a double dose is probably not a good idea. And I would say that also applies to the idea of uh, combining days if you're if you're taking a drug on a daily basis doubling up and then skipping a day is probably not a good idea uh, as a generality there are occasional exceptions to that for some drugs but as a generality I think it's it's not something I would recommend and this is a question that um, I'm going to ask um, actually um, that's, uh, thank you for your answer that's really important. Um, and um, this question, um, so it is difficult to afford all the medicine that my husband needs to take. And I tell him that his health comes first, but he likes to stretch out his medicine to save money. What can I do to help? So one thing I do want to say, and I'm going to ask one of our speakers to address this further, is that there are ways to get help with um, the cost of medications, both from various Nonprofits that have copay foundations, and also from the pharma companies themselves, and any of the copay foundations that you were to call would be able to actually assist you with that. When you conclude this call, or we conclude the call today, we'll be sending you an evaluation. But in the evaluation, will be all sorts of resources, and it will include information about um, about copay foundations, financial assistance available, and also about um, and about just the general concept of how you can get help with the cost of your medications. With that being said, um, if, um, uh, if Dr. Moroff, you could comment on the fact that um, the idea of the concept of just stretching out medicine to save money, what the implications of that are. Um, so I can reread the question. It's difficult to afford all the medicine that my husband needs to take. I tell him that his health comes first. He likes to stretch out his medicine to save money. So because of his stretching out medicine, what does that do in terms of just the benefit for the medicine? Okay, thanks, John. I, um, first, I just want to echo what you said, that um, to be aware that there are a variety of different um, sources and ways to help with co-pays or um, out-of-pocket expenses for drugs. Um, I guess I can't say strongly enough that... Um, that sometimes we are almost entirely reliant on someone taking the right dose of medication. Uh, for example, you know, chronic myeloblequemia is, is a disease treated by an oral medication. That is, if the dose was stretched out, that that could completely derail our ability to get someone into a safe remission. Um, and it may, if it's a matter of doing whatever heavy lifting is required to get that drug to that patient, um, and some of the tricks that we have up our sleeve are, are pretty outstanding. Um, um, 
I, I would never want to know about a patient who was sort of suffering in silence and stretching their drug um, therapy out because one of the most common reasons for someone not responding to treatment is that they're not unable to get their medications or they're unable to get their refills or their, or their you know, some other barrier for them taking them, especially in the era of oral medications, targeted drugs. So um, please let us help. Um, please don't be afraid to tell us. It's not, it shouldn't be embarrassing. It shouldn't be uh, something you have to bear on your own. It, it, it's so common it, at all levels. Everyone has a burden, um, unfortunately. And, um, you know, ironically, sometimes it's not um, those of us who sometimes have uh, less means. Sometimes it's people who actually are uh, caught in the middle or, or just don't have the right health insurance or the right plan. So um, let us help. Know that there are programs, and, and from the manufacturer to charitable organizations to cancer care to, to you name it. And, and most importantly, there's, a, there's another human being on the other end of the line who, who knows exactly what you're talking about and who cares about you. So, so please don't let that happen if you can at all um, uh, engage us and see what we can do. Sometimes it, it's the reality, but at least if we know about that, we can we can help you manage. So, um, uh, and hopefully that's not what has to be, but but certainly that, that's what I would say. Thank you very much. I just want to weigh in on that. It's just an important topic, but we know people are doing this, and we really want to. I I just think I think I think that's great advice, and I I will say that we have been able sometimes. It doesn't always happen, but we we have been able sometimes to get totally free drug from companies when patients don't have the means and uh, uh, they've run out of other options. So I think Dr. Morrow is right on target. Let us know about it. We can help. That's really important. Um, and most importantly, the help is there. And, and um, I think that's so important. Um, and um, this will be probably the last question that we have, but um, the question is, um, with a vision problem, the person is saying that they have a vision problem and they can't always read the labels very well. Um, I am uh, so. Um, the question is, what can be done um, because the, the labels on the on the pill containers are difficult for them to read? So, Doctor um, O'Donnell, do you want to start with that one? Absolutely. So, you know, this is a great. This is tying into what my colleague said just a moment ago. You have a team, and so, you know, this is where you need to make sure people know that you can't see them, and we can certainly help. Um, we have patients in my clinic that we do this for who have a very similar problem. So patients uh, can talk to their pharmacist. Uh, when they when they pick up the pills, um, you know, they can help with labeling and going through them, and, and you can work with your pharmacist directly um, to write on the pill bottles, you know, so that you can see what you're taking um, and, you know, work with your team to make sure they can help you identify what you're supposed to be taking uh, and come up with a system of putting those in pill boxes in a way that you know what's what um, because this is a problem that many of our patients, unfortunately, do struggle with. Um, so please, you know, let your providers know we're always happy to help with these issues. Um, and, you know, there's what we can do in the clinic if you bring your pills in to help um, put them into the correct boxes and make sure that you know what to take. But also, when if you are getting other medicines that might not be ours from your pharmacy, um, maybe a blood pressure medicine or something else, um, asking your pharmacist to help you color code or identify. Uh, color coding can be very helpful. What is for cancer? What is for heart? What is for diabetes? Um, so that you're able to know what the, the pills or medicines are without having to be able to read the labels. Well, I want to thank all of our speakers. You've all been phenomenal. This has been an amazing call, I have to say, um, under amazing circumstances. And here we are uh, delivering information to all of you, and you're all on the call. So thank you all. I want to thank our speakers. Um, I want to thank all, also all of you who've asked questions, both on the telephone and online, so that it gives us a chance to ask what your, some of your specific questions are um, to help everybody. Um, we, do, we do not want anyone to leave this call thinking that you are alone. I know we all know, of course, that there are moments when you feel that you're alone, um, and that's normal. But we also, in terms of practicality, want you to know that you have a healthcare team, you have lots of resources to call, a lot of nonprofit organizations out there in addition to cancer care that you can call for help and assistance um, uh, when, you're, when you have these 
from parents in trouble. I do want to mention the American Cancer Society because they do have a 24-hour call center, and so in 365 days a year, so that you can call them in the middle of the night, um, whatever your time zone is, that you can contact them. Um, they also have a very active website. You'll be getting that information from us when you get the evaluation form, so that's important to know. Um, we also often recommend that people contact the National Cancer Institute with questions they may have, credible sites. We really want you to only go to sites that are credible. There are a lot of sites out there that aren't really carefully monitored or not provided by, the content isn't provided by expert speakers like we have today. So please go to those type of sites. And again, we'll send you all that information at the end of the call. And never sidestep your healthcare team. They know you the best. And in these times and in all times, it's important to find out the coverage both during the day and evenings and weekends, because it does seem to be that many things come up for people on the evening and weekends. So it's good to know what the coverage is and what they recommend you do in those instances. Again, I do want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and we now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.